Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Vitaly Namkin, who is president of the Moscow-based International Center for Strategic and Political Studies and head of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at the Institute of Oriental Studies of the Russian Academy of Sciences. He is also editor-in-chief of Vostok Oriens, a journal of the Russian Academy of Sciences. He is uh, this semester visiting the political science uh, department at UC Berkeley where he's teaching a course. Welcome. Professor Namkin. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little about how your parents uh, shaped your thinking about the world. Did, did you talk much about the world? No, they, uh, they were not very much, uh, which is also surprising for my choice, because they were not very much, uh, they were um, intellectuals, but they were, my father was a uh, ballet director at the local theater, and hmm. uh, uh, so my, my, of course, there is some background in the family, because his father, my uh, grandfather, was... Uh, an officer in the Tsar's army, and he uh, died many years ago, and uh, my father was in Moscow, then he went to uh, Siberia for some reasons, and he settled in uh, Sverdlovsk, and uh, he became a good, he was a, a great dancer, and he became director of this ballet, and he survived all these difficult, uh, you know, years, and uh, so I was raised, my mother was also a, a dancer, uh, the city, and they were not very much interested in politics. They were interested in reading and just in uh, novels, and they were reading a lot, and they were interested in, in everything. But they were not, uh, you know, interested professionally in this sort of things. So mm -hmm. my interest towards history and uh, and international relations and the world was based on my self-education and reading. Mm -hmm. So did did you did you go with this uh, inclination to do international studies? Uh, is that why you went to Moscow, or did you acquire this inclination uh, in Moscow? I acquired this uh, while in Yekaterinburg. And I see. I decided to go there, and when I graduated from high school, I went to the Moscow University and, and joined this, uh, this faculty, where mm -hmm. I studied history and international relations and, uh, as majors, and also Arabic as uh, one of my majors. And what, what drew you to the Middle East as a, as a subject matter? God knows what. Uh, it was very exotic those days and I read a lot about that and I found that charming and very interesting, very unusual, maybe because of the fact that it was very far from from the world where I lived and I, I, I was brought up and I found it extremely interesting, especially history and language, culture and why I became just dreaming about that. And, and, and what year did you uh, get your PhD? Uh, well, in Moscow. In, in, Moscow. in Moscow, but what year? What year? <coughs> it was in, uh, PhD was in 71, 72, 72, sorry. 72. And, and you, you have a, obviously a facility uh, for languages. You, you speak Arabic, French, yes. English, and Russian, yes. actually. Yes, yes, I studied some, uh, also some of, uh, some Persian as well. And one very rare language of, Sorry, of the same area, mm -hmm. which is a language of one very distant island in the Indian Ocean, which is a Sokotran langu language of Sokotra. Mm -hmm. Very rare language. It was my hobby to study this language and to go there. I see. To, <laughs> to do research? So, to yes, do I did some research and published several yeah. books on that. Now, how uh, the, 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 uh, your education and your uh, focus on the Middle East occurred at a time when the Soviet Union uh, 
still existed. Uh, and, and so I'm curious about how uh, the fall of, of the Soviet Union, the fall of communism, uh, affected you uh, personally and the way you see the world. You know, I wouldn't say that it affected my thinking about the world because my thinking hasn't changed. You know, I was always uh, in favor of liberal ideas and uh, uh, liberal changes and democratic changes and uh, in our country and everywhere. And uh, so, but it changed the, the, our position as, as um, researchers because... Uh, uh, everything had been supported by the state and controlled by the state prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But even so, it was hard for some people to find new the new niche in the new life, you know. But I wouldn't say that it was it, it was a bit difficult, but uh, it was intriguing, you know, to to live differently. <clears throat> and uh, I think that I was uh, able after the collapse of the Soviet Union. <clears throat> I was uh, capable to find my place uh, in this world and uh, also my international contacts you know helped me a lot and my interest not only to the Middle East but to the central to Central Asia and to the Caucasus because I was also interested in all the Islamic areas because uh, so I was interested in Islam and part of my research had been done on Islam, you know, prior to this, uh, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, after the collapse, maybe I paid more attention to this uh, new independent, uh, you know, states, uh, former republics of the Soviet Union, uh, due to the fact that they belong now to the Islamic world. Uh, before we talk about that, and we will talk about that, I'm curious as to uh, your incubation yeah. as a liberal uh, uh, during the Soviet period. W was that because you were in the academy? Was that because you were academic? Or because of the range of readings or what? I think it was uh, partly personal, partly because I was academic, and partly because I was dealing with, with, with issues, with, with uh, uh, part of the world which was not so uh, strongly ideological for mm -hmm. the uh, for the government for the party as for instance American studies or European studies or mm. uh, studies mm. of the uh, Soviet or Russian history or uh, the problems of Russia so uh, what I thought about Russia was not a part of my research mm -hmm. you know what I did was uh, the Middle East Central Asia Caucasus Islam so it was not so I think that uh, this oriental uh, studies which I was specializing in at least I had been specializing in that until the the collapse of the Soviet Union when I became involved also in the Russian politics and uh, on our internal problems as well uh, but uh, so it was not as, as uh, much controlled and there was much more uh, you know opportunity for self-expression in these studies. With this background and, and with the fall of, of the Soviet Union and, and the, the central importance of, of Central Asia now after 9-11 in, in the world's consciousness, how do you evaluate the, the Soviet experiment in Central Asia as, a, as an effort especially to bring modernity to a very traditional way of life? I think, uh, as uh, every uh, colonial experience, it is uh, 
uh, it is ambivalent. You know, on the one hand, I think we can praise this experiment because of the modernization that was done, because these countries were just uh, something like uh, what we can see in Afghanistan. They were tribal areas with uh, uh, very, very, with very backward uh, economies and social structures and whatever. So when Russia came to Central Asia in the second half of the 19th century, uh, the uh, idea or the, the concept of modernization, I think, uh, was more or less successful and the, so, uh, during the Russian Empire even and after uh, the revolution within the Soviet rule. So, of course, there were a lot of negative sides of that as... as, as uh, uh, as, uh, but it, is, it can be compared with what the Soviet rule did to all uh, parts of uh, the Soviet Union, Russia itself. But as far as uh, these uh, regions of the Soviet Union, former republics, are concerned, I think modernization was, uh, was maybe one of the best achievements of the old uh, regime, despite all these negative sides which we all know. Do you uh, uh, believe uh, that uh, uh, the tenets of Islam are uh, incompatible with modernization and modernity? Uh, one, one wonders sometimes whether uh, uh, this apparent incompatibility is a product of what was done to the Islamic world, either by imperialism or capitalism or, you know, communism under the Soviet Union, or whether there, there are uh, t parts of the tenets of Islam that are really incompatible with, for example, the, uh, the requirement of modernization to separate uh, the state and government from religion. Uh, it's a, a hard question because I think that, uh, I believe that Islam uh, can be... Uh, uh, closely linked with modernization and can be modernized and is compatible. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't say it's that. that uh, we cannot say that any religion is, is incompatible with modernity because uh, all these religions, they are different, but all these uh, Abrahamic religions, that they are very similar. But uh, uh, Islam is a very special sort of religion at the same time because it is uh, um, very closely related to with with power with state and the concept of uh, state and power uh, was always a part of all Islamic uh, teachings and uh, so we can and and the first uh, Islamic state the state of Prophet Muhammad was a, a theocracy and uh, so this is one of the reasons why Islam is uh, pretending to control uh, the uh, greater part of the individuals of the over individuals' life and control uh, controlling state as well. So, to what extent uh, the modernity can be brought into the Islamic territories? I think yes. It, uh, we know that there are a lot of. Uh, modernizers within the Islam. There were a lot of thinkers started from the 19th century that were dreaming about modernizing Islam everywhere, starting from Muhammad Abdo in Egypt and all this this uh, group of modernizers, as well as in the it is in Russia, in Central Asia, we had so-called Jadids that were modernizers, and a lot of other groupings that 
were dreaming about modernizing the Islamic world. And we had also traditionalists who were uh, thinking in a more traditionalist terms, but, and we had so-called revivalists that were, uh, or fundamentalists, that were aiming at reviving the idea of Islamic State and coming back to the old days of the first theocratic rule uh, within uh, the Islamic world. So uh, I think that, uh, of course, it is very uh, uh, counterproductive to impose changes in the Islamic world by force or by from, from the outside world. And the more you, you pressure this uh, Islamic uh, world, the more, more ground you create for these uh, fundamentalists and traditionalists to exploit this situation in order to protect their own values. Because if the society is, any society within the Islamic world, is a traditional one, and especially if it's fragmented one, it's a part of their identity. And you cannot just uh, uh, organize a sort of cultural uh, invasion, a cultural, the cultural pressure from the uh, developed world is in itself so great that the people uh, have some counter-reaction against it. They're trying to protect their own values. And it uh, creates uh, the ground for political mobilization on the part of those evil forces who want to use the situation in order to seize power. They're thinking about power, nothing more. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's, let's take a look at the end of the Cold War and the dynamic which led on the one hand the Soviet Union to invade Afghanistan and on the other hand the United States to respond to that uh, uh, invasion and uh, uh, what you had was a uh, uh, a decade of clandestine and open uh, struggle. Uh, uh, in, in retrospect, how important was that dynamic and the wreckage uh, that resulted in, in creating uh, the present situation in which the fundamentalists appeared to have taken something of an upper hand, at least as Islam presents itself globally? I think that um, the invasion in Afghanistan was one of the most uh, serious and tragic mistakes <coughs> of the Soviet government those days. And uh, it, was, it was more than a mistake. It was sort of, I think it was even crime, you know, because uh, first of all, it, it didn't uh, serve any interests of uh, the people of uh, the Soviet Union those days. And even the, the the regime itself, you know, because it contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union in general. Uh, it created a lot of problems for many years between the Russians and the Islamic world as well, because there are still the historic memories are very, very powerful in all traditional societies. The the, the history is there to the hearts of. Uh, to the souls of the people uh, in these, uh, you know, countries. And the people won't forget, you know, the woes of this war. No, what, but, but the negative result was that due to the uh, rationale, to the logic of the Cold War, of course the United States supported these Islamic forces that actually were forces uh, not only uh, were struggling against uh, the Soviet Union as an invader. So they were right in, in trying to do that. But at the same time, they were against modernization. Hmm. 
they were traditional forces, revivalists, fundamentalists, that were working against modernization of the country, which was imposed by, by the Soviets those days. So forget about communism. I wouldn't say that uh, it, it is uh, impossible to imagine that Afghanistan could have been turned into a communist country. <laughs> it's strange. Only so you're talking about crazy. big power politics. Yeah, right? big power politics, politics of course. Yeah. But as a result of that, on the one side was uh, the main factor of the collapse of the Soviet Union, big crisis in, in Russia, <clears throat> and it is still there. <laughs> and on the other hand, we have very powerful Islamic fundamentalist movements supported from the days when the people like Osama bin Laden, who were fighting within the ranks of these guys, have been supported by the West and found funding from Saudi Arabia and military support from Pakistan, and uh, also were supported by the West and by the United States. So uh, what, what uh, then do you see as the role of the Saudis in adding to this uh, witch's brew that has emerged from that part of the world? Oh, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia is, uh, is a very important country. And it is important because it's a cradle of Wahhabism. as a very uh, Puritan, very special sort, kind of, of Islam. Though they prefer not to call themselves Wahhabis, they prefer to call themselves Salafis, or the adherents of the classical Islam, of the Islam of the first days of the Islamic State, and uh, but at the same time, uh, the the, the uh, Saudis uh, have been always supporting all sorts of uh, these revivalist and fundamentalist uh, movements in the world. By the way, the Saudis now are saying that the West uh, uh, is uh, owes Saudi Arabia at least two things. I, I remember that when I spoke to one of the leaders in one of the rulers in Saudi Arabia, one of the ruling family, he told me, yes, the West owes us two things. First, we helped the United States in the, uh, you know, in the implementation of the Marshall Plan, because we are supporting Europe with the cheap oil. Second, we helped them to liberate Europe and uh, also this, uh, the, uh, and also Russians from communism, because we are supporting this struggle in, of the uh, Mujahideen in Afghanistan, and it you know, exploded the whole situation, and Europe, Eastern Europe, was liberated from communism. And so it is partly, it is true, but what is the agenda of those Saudis? They have different agendas. Maybe the ruling family, which is, and the modernized part of this society, which is really and friendly relations with the West, they have their agenda in maybe modernizing society and keeping it, and but keeping power in their hands as well. But there are a lot of forces within this society who have quite a different agenda in building Islamic caliphate, building Islamic states all over the world and supporting all these forces that are now working against, practically speaking, human civilization as terrorists. Mm -hmm. uh, looking then at the d dynamic in, in the Middle East, in, in the Arab world, what, what else, other than, than uh, uh, the, the trail left by the Saudis and the, the bipolar conflict with the Soviets, what else do you think is, is driving uh, the dynamic uh, leading to the empowering of, of this global fundamentalist movement? I think there are a lot of socio-economic factors. 
very big gap between uh, different states, different uh, regions, different social forces. So many of these states are ruled by uh, dictators and uh, there is lack of, clear lack of democracy in these countries or may sometimes, you know, uh, uh, absence of any, any elements of democracy and also uh, no participation on the part of people, no participation at all, you know, in, in, in any sorts of, you know, uh, decision-making or they cannot be represented by any way. So self-expression, the problem of self-expression is so that, and uh, so uh, strong that the people, uh, they find in the Islamic alternative uh, something that can bring a change in their conditions, in their lives, and they are not satisfied with these conditions. So uh, when the leftist alternative, so socialist or whatever, you know, communist, socialist, and something of that kind, it disappeared because it's, it's not no credibility, mm. maybe for many years, or at least, who knows. <coughs> so the only alternative is Islam maybe radical Islam, because they are proposing to them easy solutions. So, we'll come back well, to this state, caliphate or Islamic rule, so everybody will be equal. So, it's the same ideas as the communists uh, used, you know, social justice, equality, so wealth distributed between everybody, and you'll participate in all these things through the uh, Islamic mechanisms, and it will be fair, the state will be fair to everybody. And it's not a, a pure, mere coincidence that a lot of former followers of the uh, socialist or Arab nationalist ideas, because Arab nationalism also was discredited, mm -hmm. uh, they just uh, turned to the uh, support of the Islamic. They became adherents of the radical Islamic movements. And this shift can be explained also in the terms of, uh, in the scope of this social and economic and psychological and cultural problems. Also, the anti-Westernization is a very substantial part of this process. Because the people feel frustrated because they feel that it's something which is very strong, which they cannot, uh, you know, actually prevent to invade in, uh, in their societies, like mass media, Western mass media, uh, information, education, you know, wealth, technologies, everything. So what so is ours? They have their own identity. They, they would like to protect themselves from this, you know, strong pressure. So I think uh, the West in general, so all of us, Europeans, so whatever, we need to have some self-restraint. We have to, uh, to, to be cautious about you know, intervening in the affairs of this world. We have to help to, in, to enhance modernization, but very cautiously, without, without breaking this. Because it reminds, so if we are going to change everything, to impede these changes by force, we'll, we'll, we'll just behave like Bolsheviks. They had the same idea <laughs> of changing everything, you know, some expert of revolution. So it is, I th expert of democracy, I think, is not less harmful than the idea of the expert of revolution. Does this description uh, that you, an analysis that you're presenting with, uh, presenting us with, suggest that uh, in the present environment, Russia and uh, the United States have a great uh, a compatibility of interest in dealing with that part of the world? Absolutely. 
I think that uh, we have full compatibility in uh, dealing with these parts of the world. We have common interests. These are interests in providing security to, to all of us. And Russia is uh, uh, regarding itself as a part of the Western world and wants to be a close ally to the United States. And I think uh, Mr. Putin's uh, politics, uh, especially since uh, September 11th, is a clear evidence of his course because I think the main Putin idea is idea of modernization. He wants to modernize the country and he's ready to do whatever is needed to do that. And uh, uh, of course the last uh, contradictions on the issue of Iraq is a very special case. But in general uh, the, there is a clear coincidence of interests, security, uh, economic interests, so Russian interest is interested in, uh, I think, uh, in American uh, presence uh, in the world, economically and uh, politically. Uh, but uh, uh, as I said, I think it's, it will be very counterproductive to understand this as uh, trying to change this world in accordance with our uh, recipes by force and trying to speed up all these developments. I'm in favor of evolution, so all these regimes uh, uh, can uh, undergo certain evolution as uh, the communist regimes uh, in the Soviet Union and Eastern, Eastern Europe uh, did. They did it successful. Mm -hmm. Before we um, talk a little about Iraq, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, Russia's dealing with Islamic fundamentalism and questions of autonomy for particular regions, you know, within, within its own with its own boundaries. Uh, how how would you assess the way the the different post uh, Soviet Russian regimes have have dealt with the the province of Chechnya? So I think it's uh, uh, Russia has a bad. Uh, record of uh, dealing with Chechnya. Though in general I would rather say that in general the uh, government's uh, you know, position towards uh, Muslim regions and towards Islam and autonomies and these ethnic minorities um, is, is not bad at all. It's not bad at all. We have uh, very broad autonomies for, for all these regions and there is much, of, much tolerance in the politics of Kremlin towards these regions. And uh, I think the government is very cautious about, you know, uh, impeding changes or trying to, yeah, to, to spread its, uh, you know, control over all these uh, over spheres that are very sensitive for the Muslims and whatever. But now, yeah, sorry, before you get, does that extend back to the Soviet period, what you're describing, or is this only now in the no, post-Soviet world? Uh, no, the Soviet Union was different. Uh, also, this, I have some, uh, you know, it was controversial. On the one hand, uh, it was, uh, there were some positive elements in the, uh, in, the in, in, for instance, in uh, spreading education and uh, culture in certain regions and uh, also developing uh, uh, local maybe uh, ethnic elites and so on. But in general, the uh, Soviet nationalities policy uh, did a lot of damage to the country and uh, uh, also its atheistic uh, Bolshevik, uh, you know, uh, dimension was even more damaging. But there was a lot of positive things, as I said, done in Central Asia and the Islamic region, like modernizing uh, these regions and 
especially in the sphere of education and uh, modernization. But the Chechnya is a very sad case. And uh, um, it, it happened that this region uh, was alienated. Of course, it is, on the one hand, its legacy of the past, because there was a big Caucasian war in, uh, in the 19th century. But the question is why, if this is the main reason, as some Chechens think, so why the other, uh, you know, uh, uh, ethnic groups in the Northern Caucasus are not participating and are not conducting such, uh, you know, revolts against, for instance, Russia, being a part, being parts of it, like Dagestan, because the Caucasian war, Imam Shamil in the 19th century, he was a Navar from Dagestan, he was not a Chechen, and the Imamat, which was you know, conducting this war against Russia for many years was mainly an Avar, uh, you know, uh, component. The Avar component was the main one, uh, mm -hmm. head led by the Avars, by the Dagestanis. And as, as far as Dagestan is concerned, there is no problem. In Gush, which are an ethnic group very close to Chechens, are very peaceful uh, ethnic group, and they have no problems with, uh, with Moscow. So why is Chechnya? Why is Chechnya? So, but still, the Chechens are very independent-minded, uh, 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 you know, people, uh, and I think they have very special mentality, very special, um, you know, uh, political culture of, of violence also, or also of violence, and being deported, but many ethnic groups were deported, some of them are now mm -hmm. quite comfortable. They, they didn't, of course, they didn't forget about these, these Stalin deportations, but the Chechens are different. They have very uh, strong historic memory, very strong uh, uh, culture of culture of violence, uh, and uh, very specific mentality, which helped them to uh, to to start this rebellion. And uh, in the beginning, this rebellion or this, these ideas, they were supported by, unfortunately, by some Democrats from the center because. Uh, the main idea of some Democrats in the beginning of the 90s was to uh, replace the old nomenclatura, the old party uh, bureaucrats who were ruling, this, uh, ruling these regions by some new people. And they were imagining, they, they had some illusions about the fact that maybe Mr. Dudaev, who is a new guy, new general, he will be a Chechen general, who yeah. was supported there as a uh, something, somebody who came instead of the old uh, party bureaucracy. He would be a good, uh, you know, ally of, of uh, new democratic Russia. And it was a mistake because <coughs> he came with uh, crazy ideas of, uh, of uh, I, I wouldn't say that they have no right to, to, to work uh, or to struggle for independence. I have but but they have to use legitimate right, legitimate means for that, legitimate ways for that. But what happened that uh, under Dudaev, Chechnya turned into a place where a lot of people were taking host hostages, kidnapped, and a lot of criminal affairs. You know, uh, just a part of their ordinary life. He tried to uh, change <coughs> the tradition traditional way of life of the Chechens and to turn it into an Islamic rule and uh, in the fundamentalist sense. And a lot of bad things were done. But of course, I still think that it was a mistake that uh, uh, 
the Kremlin started the war then. Uh, I think it was, there was still some uh, opportunity to uh, deal with the problem, to solve the problem by peaceful means, but it, uh, it wasn't done then. Now we are all uh, living the, we are all uh, uh, seeing all these bad, very negative consequences of the situation. The war is still there, though the active phase of war is over. I am a cautious optimist. I think that uh, most of the Chechens now, they are, uh, they think about the future, they want to live peacefully, and there is some uh, opportunity of uh, solving this problem. So, but I need that, I think that uh, both, both sides, both the Chechens and the government uh, have to, uh, have to, uh, you know, to use more, to be more tolerant to use, uh, you know, better ways for understanding and trying to uh, solve this problem peacefully. Now, is, are the, uh, the, the rebellion there, or what, whatever is the appropriate term, the, 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 uh, the discontent and so on, how much is it uh, uh, affected by these external forces, both in, in concrete aid, but also in terms of, of ideology? Very much. I would say that, of course, there is a, maybe, in general, it's insurgency. In general, it's a, some, uh, you know, movement, uh, a separatist movement. Certain part of this movement is a terrorist one. So not all Chechen fighters are terrorists, but some of them are. And some of them are international terrorists. And it's supported by the international terrorists. I heard here, I listened to the uh, lecture by, of Mr. Uh, Ahmadov, who is a foreign minister of re unrecognized government of Maskadov. And he said the most, uh, I remember some two thoughts uh, by in, of his lecture are very, very important. The first, that the Chechens now, they are so much fragmented, because they're, uh, confronting which it's, it, with each other. It's a very uh, tragic result of this war because it's not only uh, a conflict between Chechens and Russians, it's conflict between Chechens themselves mm. because most of the Chechens are living in the uh, Russian territory outside Chechnya. And second, that of course the Chechens, when uh, uh, living in these circumstances, they were uh, ready to accept uh, any aid from one, uh, whatever, you know, is supporting them, whoever is supporting them. So the aid which was coming from these international, uh, you know, organizations, terrorist, radical Islamic organizations aimed at creating Islamic State in the North Caucasus. And we know all that, you know, I, I know that I, I am traveling through the Middle East, uh, and this aid was so big that you can go in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen, in, uh, in any country, you can enter a mosque and you can see there are some boxes support the fighters in Chechnya. The people are donating money. Hmm. Maybe they, not of them are uh, in favor of this, you know, military, you know, insurgency. Uh, but still, when they are, uh, you, know, you know, called for supporting the poor Chechens uh, that are suffering from the infidel rule, you know, they are giving money, and this money are used not for good purposes. They are, sometimes they are uh, working in the, the terrorist networks all over the world, and they are used for drug trafficking, for, you know, killing people, and in general there is a part of this 
anti-Western, anti-Christian, uh, you know, big battle, which is, uh, you know, conducted by these Islamic forces. But not all Chechens are uh, of it. I am far from being, from, from trying to describe Chechens as, as all of them as terrorists. There are people who are separatists, and there are people who are just innocent uh, victims of the fact that they are just forced to go there. They have no way to do but to support this. That's the most tragic thing in the present situation. It's very difficult for Mr. Putin to find ways to do that. But they are trying, and there, is, there will be elections, referendum. Um, maybe it will, it will help to solve the problem. Uh, as uh, uh, it, this international fundamentalist movement identifies with various uh, uh, movements for autonomy within particular nation states, what, what immediately comes to mind is uh, the question of Israel and the Palestinians. And, and I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, do you think that, that, it, that uh, the Arab states and international Islam can reconcile themselves to the existence uh, of uh, Israel as a state, uh, even though fund certain fundamentalist terrorist uh, uh, groups might oppose that existence? I think that the Arab states, or many of them, have already uh, agreed with the existence, accepted the existence of Israel. The many states, first of all, Egypt, Egypt, which is maybe the main and the most important Arabic state, uh, Arab state, and uh, I think it's uh, in general it is possible. Of course, there are fundamentalists who are using every opportunity to uh, to, uh, to to they will kill every opportunity of recognizing Israel on the part of the Arabs. Um, but unfortunately, the situation is so bad in the. Uh, relationship between Israel and Palestinians, that there is a fertile ground for Islamists and for radical groups, you know, to use it. But they say, no, it's no, no other way to liberate our, uh, you know, land, but uh, to start this struggle with using all these methods. And history knows that many liberation movements, they uh, resorted to, not only to violence, but they resorted to terrorist ways of uh, you know, trying to liberate themselves from what they consider to be as invasion or foreign rule or whatever. That's true. Let's talk now a little about Iraq. What What is, uh, and you, you've studied Iraq, you've, you've been there, uh, you were, I believe, involved in uh, negotiations at the time of the first Persian Gulf War and so on. Well, what is the nature of that regime? What, what is the most important thing for uh, an American audience that might not uh, have all the facts before to, to understand about that regime? You know, I think it's, uh, of course, it's very specific regime, but uh, if we go a little bit back, we can see that somewhere in the uh, 50s and 60s, there were uh, several movements in the Arab world that were uh, just supported by the majority of the Arabs. They were Arab uh, secular nationalists. The first one was Nasser, Nasserism, Gemara uh, Abdel Nasser in Egypt. And Nasserism was very popular all over the Arab world. And he, it was, this movement was, or this ideology was supported by many people. And uh, then uh, it was Baasism, the Baasi uh, doctrine 
which was born somewhere in the end of, 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 of the 40s, uh, maybe the first Arab national, real nationalist movement which was born there. Uh, it was the second one, and there was a movement of, so-called movement of Arab nationalists. So these three, you know, big uh, movements were uh, transnational Arab movements that were uh, calling uh, uh, people to support the idea of the Arab state, Arab nation, and liberation, and whatever. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, Nasserism died, practically, and uh, is not cannot be considered as a political force, but Barsi's remained. There are still uh, two Barsi's regimes. The first one is the Iraqi one, the second one is the Syrian regime, which is a Barsi regime. So it's, uh, <coughs> it is a secular regime, and I think we can hardly imagine that this regime can have good relations with radical Islamists or even terrorist groups. So for me, the, the arguments are for uh, these connections, you know, are for me very flimsy uh, because you know the Baathists and all Arab nationalists have been always considered by terrorists and Islamists and radical extremist uh, Islamic groups as the main enemies because they were uh, not allowing them to gain supporters to uh, to to uh, to win support of the of the Arabs within this country. So the main war was between these two. Uh, uh, you know, factions, like Arab nationalists, secular nationalists, and Islamists, all over this history. So this was a <coughs> this sort of regime. Of course, this regime as, 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 uh, was a, uh, of course, it's a brutal regime. Of course, it's oppressing uh, people. Of course, we cannot see that, uh, uh, of course, uh, th there are a lot of, uh, this regime deserves to be criticized. And, but you know, at the same time, uh, Saddam Hussein, when, when he started this war against Iran, uh, he was supported by many states, including the United States. And uh, so we have to recognize that uh, Iraq was supported against Iran. You can say that it was the less of two evils, you know, those days, as some people say, but still many... Uh, my American colleagues and friends say, and even <coughs> who served in the administration are saying, yes, it was a mistake that we supported it in the end of the 80s at least. <coughs> but at the same time, you know, Saddam Hussein and this regime, they had some uh, hints and uh, uh, illusions that they uh, would be supported even if they invade Kuwait. And the Iraqis think, at least the people, at least intellectuals, not not also, not not uh, only Baathists. They say they think that they have some, uh, you know, uh, they have uh, some legal rights to find ways to solve the the conflict with Iran because of the access to the Persian Gulf, because they think that the regime which exists there, the regime of the access through, through the river Shat al-Arab, <coughs> is not fair to the Iraqis. And they think this, uh, then they, they have the same scores with uh, the Kuwaitis. And whatever the government is in Iraq, <coughs> it will, even if there is a new government, it will start uh, by trying to, hopefully through negotiations, but it, it has some uh, legitimate security interests in solving the problem of the access to the Persian Gulf. 
it exists, and it's acknowledged by all specialists and experts here and there. So, I can also recollect that in the 60s and 70s, the Iraqi uh, regime did uh, some positive changes in the country. There was some development, so a lot of people were satisfied with their position. I remember that when I was meeting some Iraqis traveling all over the world, uh, like small uh, officials and even school teachers were having their vacations in Europe, buying cars and just spending a couple of months in traveling all over these countries. So we cannot say that it was everything was bad and everything was oppressed. You know, uh, of course, uh, the nature of almost all the, these regimes are uh, is 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 uh, is very, I would say, uh, has a bad record of human rights from the point of view of human rights. Of course, but who has a good experience of expertise? Or who has good records on in the human rights in the Middle East? And who has better, uh, you know, record of uh, of uh, democracy, for instance? If we are speaking about relationship connections with uh, uh, this or that regime and some extremists, uh, look at, for instance, Pakistan. The Taliban are there. A lot of people from uh, Qaeda are in Pakistan uh, illegally produced uh, nuclear weapons are there in Pakistan. The government are not controlling a part of its territory. There are a lot of supporters of the uh, uh, terrorist organizations within the governmental organizations, within the army, within the armed forces, and uh, especially intelligence, ISS, who has been involved in supporting Taliban for many years. So, uh, Maybe Pakistan is, uh, could, could be a target, mm -hmm. uh, because I think it's very important to concentrate for all of us, because we're all partners in anti-terrorist coalition and this global war against terror. So there is main target, uh, international terrorism. And in this target, there are places where still the terrorists can find a safe haven for them. Mm -hmm. And I heard from some of the uh, commentators uh, from the... Uh, from the TV channels here that there are still uh, Qaeda supporters within in the United States. So I don't think that uh, in, in Iraq, for instance, we can see a fertile ground for supporting ter international terrorists. It's a secular regime, uh, a bad score, uh, uh, with a very bad from the point of view of human rights, but I think that this regime, uh, well, it wants, wants to survive, to remain in, to stay in power and uh, it's there's still some uh, at least for as for now some uh, very slim opportunity to engage it and uh, to, to, to work with it on the basis of complying with the all the resolutions of the United Nations so, so you would you would argue that the the uh, that the arguments about the danger of weapons of mass destruction, uh, the dangers of, of links uh, to terrorism uh, uh, need to be weighed in, in the, the context of 
what else is going on you know, in the region. Now, I, I would guess that the administration would argue that Iraq has crossed the line. I mean, sure, there are human rights violators in the region, but, but no one has used chemical weapons against its own population as the Iraqis did uh, against the Kurds. Uh, and, you know, no one... Uh, Pakistan aside, because I think your point is well taken there, has apparently as aggressively moved to obtain uh, weapons of, of mass destruction. India. Uh, India, yeah. Not an Arab country, though, okay. yeah. But, but, I, but I guess the, the interesting, uh, the, the thrust of your argument really calls into question the notion that, uh, A, it's necessary to intervene in Iraq as opposed to somewhere else, but also... Uh, Embedded in uh, the administration's policy is the notion that Iraq can become a platform from which both Iraq can be democratized and the whole region. Uh, you don't believe that, do you? Hopefully it can happen. You know, we'll be all glad if everybody is democratized in this world. But uh, you can. Uh, the question is whether you are able to do it by force, by military force, mm -hmm. and what is the cost of this uh, and uh, of of this behavior, of this action. So it can. The results can be just uh, contrary, uh, contrary to what you are expecting. You know, your agenda is democratization, but it might lead to uh, chaos in this country and all over the Islamic world. It can lead into. Uh, there is also a score-settling risk because the country is highly fragmented. It's inhabited by, you know, Arabs, Sunnis, Shiites, Kurds, uh, everybody. And a lot of uh, factions that uh, have been, you know, hating each other for many years. So the country is ruled by a Sunni uh, minority because the Sunni is a minority. Uh, the country is uh, ruled by a Ba'athi party, uh, and it, but it is a mistake to imagine that it is only a regime of one dictator. <coughs> there is a regime with a deep-rooted regime, with many people who are supporting this uh, this guy, who are members of this party, who are uh, members who are officers in the army, in the security apparatus. And what are you going to do with all these people? <clears throat> there will be a lot of revenge. A lot of people will be ready to uh, have the same privileges as they people had. And uh, there will be a lot of, uh, of blood in this mm -hmm. country. Because, so are you going to engage these people? Uh, what is your agenda? And, uh, until now, I haven't heard anything. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure whether anybody has any clear vision about who, are, who the new people are uh, going to be. And there will be very old scores settled in this country. Also, the changing the very uh, fragile balance of power in this country uh, can lead into some very severe, uh, you know, uh, conflicts between Turks and Iraqis, Turks and Kurds, Kurds and Turks. And the involvement of Turkey is also very dangerous, not a very easy Way. Without Turkey, you cannot do anything, but with Turkey, it also creates new risks. And uh, I think the measure, the level of threat is, of course, it's exaggerated. Of course, Saddam Hussein cannot represent, in my view, any threat to any, anyone. Even if he has uh, several uh, missiles that exceed the range which is prescribed by the revolution by uh, six miles. Oh, okay. 
So he, for this, uh, uh, for the last uh, 11 years, uh, he hasn't uh, done anything, you know, in the as as a terrorist attack or something like that. The Iraqis uh, were not resorting to terrorism. It's also surprising. Uh, he is doing a lot of bad things, but he's not an international terrorist. <coughs> And he has no, in my view, he has no clear links with uh, anybody else. And so to suppose that he's, uh, even if there are some remnants of some, you know, wep weaponry, some, why should it be uh, easier for uh, the Islamic terrorists uh, to have an access to uh, these remnants? But not to have uh, an access for the Pakistani, to the Pakistani weapons, for instance, mm -hmm. or some chemical weapons that were, are available in many, many states of the region. We know that uh, a lot of states they were experimenting in in the field of chemical weapons and biological weapons. Simply, we don't know what companies from Europe helped uh, what country. There are rumors that maybe in Egypt they tried to do that. Maybe in some North African states. Maybe in some Asian, South Asian states. We don't know. So there are uh, a lot of opportunities to create a dirty bomb, to use uh, some uh, waste, nuclear waste, which is buried somewhere, even in Central Asia. So who knows what the terrorists are going to be. So we have to concentrate on this target, not to allow them to do uh, whatever they can do. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think the idea of, uh, uh, of a Bolshevik-type idea of uh, creating Iraq into a platform of democratization by uh, by, you know, imposing uh, uh, internal conflict, it, and I think it's inevitable. It's uh, a not, not very good idea. Well, a final question here, which is I, I get the sense that uh, 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 drawing on your, your breadth of knowledge and study of the region and so on, that, that you, you, you're saying that uh, uh, our, the United States, but but also maybe in some cases in the past, uh, uh, Russia uh, have uh, ignored the the complexity of of Islam and the Arab world, and 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 sort of not really focused enough on the fragmentation and the 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 opposition that's created by intervention and an effort to impose either Western values or uh, uh, a, a Western security agenda. Are those the key elements in what we're missing and misperceiving in, in this part of the world as we develop our policies? Or is there something else that you would like to leave us with? No, I think you are right. And we have to... Uh, I think uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that we uh, we better live with some bad guys. We better, I'm sorry. We better have to live with some bad guys. To live with some bad guys. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. it's inevitable. Yeah. It's inevitable. We cannot, you know, because and the whole we have to understand all this, as you said, you're quite right to understand all this complexity of the situation in the Middle East, because you know sometimes uh, we are satisfied with bad regimes, with bad guys, but who are friendly towards us. I am saying us because we are now in, 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 one, uh, in one place. We are allies. Mm -hmm. The West, Russia, it's all the same in my view. It's all for, for at least for the uh, Muslims, for the Arabs, it's all the same. And uh, sometimes they look friendly. But they have still a lot of problems for as far as their population is concerned because they create problems for the population and they make them supporters of the most 
uh, you know, aggressive, uh, radical extremist movements. At the same time, there are uh, countries and states that might be not very, we are maybe not very pleased with them, but still they are moving towards democracy. Look at Iran, for instance. Because I was surprised by the fact that the pre President Khatami was elected by free election. Uh, he was not supported by the ruling group of, of mullahs who were supporting Mr. Nuri, Speaker of the Parliament. So it means that there are elements of democracy in Iran stronger than in many other states of this region, which are more friendly to the West, but not uh, advanced uh, very much in the path towards democracy. So this uh, uh, is uh, necessary to be taken into account, and we have to, I think, to support some forces of change, of modernization, and even some moderate factions of the Islamic movement to integrate them into modern society, to make them, to turn them into our friends, and not to alienate. Because the, I think the, uh, I'm not against change, but I think uh, to go to war in every case we dislike someone and to put into our you know records in our history that for instance there was uh, what could be described as an uh, American Arab war uh, will be not not very productive for the future of for instance uh, US Arab relations the same about Russia and Islam I don't think that uh, what is this war in Chechnya uh, serves our security 100%, though it was maybe necessary. Now it's necessary to do something. We cannot just withdraw our forces and uh, to leave them. It's impossible. It, it will not work. Uh, but sometimes it's better to find ways for understanding and not to go to war whenever uh, it is possible. Professor Mopkin, on that note, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to, to visit the Berkeley campus this semester, but also to be a guest on our program. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's and a pleasure and distinct uh, privilege for me to do that. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.